Okay. First of all, um, thank you for coming to the UA Campus Bookstore. I'm Rachel Epstein, the events coordinator, and um, really excited about our, our special event today. Um, first, uh, a few words about parking. We have free parking for all bookstore events, and the parking lot in front of the bookstore and the parking lot behind Rasmussen Hall. You do not have to pay for parking for any bookstore event. We have some light refreshments at the tables. You're welcome to take whatever you like. The bookstore closes at 6 o'clock during the summer. We have to be out of the front doors by 6 o'clock. Um, thank you all for coming. We will have uh, time for a uh, discussion after our guest speaker's presentation. And this event is being recorded and will be on iTunes tomorrow. You just search the UA Campus Bookstore in iTunes Store to find it or go to the UA Campus Bookstore website. So I I'm really thrilled that we are able to record this event today. Right now I'd like to welcome Dr. Maria Williams, who is Director of Alaska Native Studies. Uh, thank you all for coming. Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Maria Williams, Director of Alaska Native Studies. Until June 30th, and then I return to faculty, and then uh, Dr. Beth Leonard will be the new Director of Alaska Native Studies. Um, I'm so pleased to be here this afternoon. I want to, uh, of course, thank Rachel for being the, the, the wonderful hostess that she is. Um, we have a wonderful um, guest speaker today, Dr. Nicholas Vasani, who is a visiting Fulbright scholar. He's currently <laughs> in residence uh, at the University uh, of Minnesota Twin Cities. Um, he wrote to me about a couple, three, four weeks ago, maybe, about his research and maybe coming to Alaska. And I thought, oh my gosh, this is so intriguing. And I'm especially intrigued by the research that he's doing, not only with the Inuit, but the, the European yeah. documentation of the Inuit, but also on shamanism, which is such a fantastic, wonderful history of all indigenous people, but particularly of Alaska. Um, but I want to thank um, the Fulbright um, Foundation. I want to thank Dr. Maida Choba Dehas, who's our um, joint appointment in anthropology and Alaska Native Studies, and a fellow Hungarian. Uh, and so she was really key in, in, uh, in providing some wonderful uh, advice for uh, Dr. Vasani's first visit. He went to Fairbanks and had a frontier experience. He but I, I also want to thank Rachel again, and I want to thank all of you for coming and taking time this afternoon, and I'll let Nicholas take it away. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, dear friends, uh, dear Rachel, Rachel, sorry, thank you for the invitation. Thank you. Uh, my thanks go to Dr. Maria Williams for accepting um, my request um, of being my host, and thank, thanks for thanks to Rachel for accepting the request that this event could be hosted here. Um, as you can see on this slide, uh, our topic is the history of the earliest uh, recorded encounters between Inuit. Let me use this large term or this term in a large sense, and Northwestern uh, Europeans. We are into the written sources because I'm no uh, archaeologist, so we are not will not really rely on archaeological evidence, but we'll go into the sources uh, themselves. We'll go, we'll go back to the sources themselves for information, and namely to the earliest sources, which are mostly either in Old Icelandic or in Latin, and some of them are Greek. This is because uh, the first part of the presentation will concern in an introductory manner, the history of late ancient geography, which is very interesting to me at least, and I hope it's 
it will serve as a fundament to our research later into medieval sources because it reveals how late ancient man and then early medieval and Carolingian man viewed the earth, um, what they had in terms of cosmographical and more specifically in geographical ideas, what was the shape of the earth and so on, where were the limits of the known earth? That's the most interesting question here because this topic is of course related to the history of the great geographic discoveries. So immediately, as soon as we are dealing with Inuit early history, then we are dealing with the history of great geographical discoveries and with church history too, because many of the people who wrote, especially in Latin about, but also in all Icelandic, about these encounters were clerics, so belonged to the church. So then we are concentrating on the earliest written sources and um, chiefly in terms of geographic extension, we are concentrating on the Northwest Atlantic and even more in a special Greenland, uh, Baffin Island, Labrador Peninsula and Newfoundland. So this is the geographical delimitation and then as to time span, we'll start in the late 10th century and we'll not go beyond, I think, 13th century. So this is really the earliest period. We are not interested in post-Columbian or um, yeah, even later things, we could deal with that too. You can ask questions, please ask questions about it after. I'm into that too, but it is impossible to, to cover all that in 60 minutes. So we have a very restricted time uh, scope, uh, chronological uh, time span, 10th to 13th century. And then the structure of the presentation, as I've uh, told you, um, this is going to be uh, this is going to consist of an introductory part which will deal with the history of geography and then in a main part we'll see and analyze several sources. So just in terms of terminology, it is of course a difficult question how you should name this group that we are interested in. <coughs> It is universally recognized that the term Eskimo is considered derogatory by many. Uh, then again, the term Inuit does not designate all these peoples. So we are really uh, at odds. Luckily, today we'll concentrate on the two uh, more red uh, tribes or groups, the Kalalisut and the Inuktitut. I mean, these are names of the languages they speak, of course. But then, they may be conveniently called as Inuit, at least, so we, we shall use this term in this particular sense and probably will not even refer to the rest of the groups. Now, for the very first uh, slide of interest, I thought it would be very convenient to uh, put a citation uh, of Cicero, although this is a very well-known source text, the Somnium Scipionis, so Scipio's vision. Uh, Somnium here refers to a night vision which conveys truth, because otherwise Cicero is a skeptic. So he tells you uh, in a text entitled De Somnius, 
and in other texts dealing with divination and magic and so on, that he doesn't believe in night visions. So here he is making an exception because his uh, protagonist, CPO Minor, that just does have a vision, a cosmic vision of the universe, uh, which is true. As you all know, Cicero's Dere Publica is a, a, a rehashed, but very original um, reflection on Plato's Republic. So it is structured in pretty much the same manner, although a great part of it is lost. This part, the Somnium, belongs to Book 6, where it wants to be a replica of Plato's Myth of Ur. The Myth of Ur is a myth about the other world at the very end of Plato's Republic. So you read those 500 pages and the, five, the last three are very important, the last five. That's the myth of Ur, a vision of the other world. And Cicero wanted to like, make a replica of Plato's Republic. So he also interested such a closure at the very end of his Dere Publica, and this is the Somnium. Now, the Somnium gives you uh, instructions as to how to live, what is the virtuous life. It is life uh, offered to the good of the, of the Republic. But it, has, it, it just implies a cosmological vision of the structure of the universe, great, and the structure of the Earth. And now we are dealing with this text part. The structure of the Earth. The Earth is inhabited in sparse and narrow places. And even within these parts, there are emptinesses, empty spaces, isolating one inhabited spot from the other. So then uh, there is nothing that can proceed to from one isolated spot inhabited by men, people, to another. And then the last line is very interesting. I asked for a light board because I couldn't find a good uh, image of this on the internet. So this is the famous story of the antipodes. I'll be very quick, I'll be very quick but he insists on this, so I think it's interesting that if you stand here, then the antipodes are standing here. So these are called the antipodes. And then uh, the antipodes are those who stand sideways to you. And then the antoikoid are these. So I wanted to draw this picture in order to make it clear that late ancient uh, cosmological vision uh, had no doubt about the, f the fact that the Earth is a globe. So there was no talk about the Earth being flat or whatever. Very clearly the Earth is a globe, and that implies this phenomenon. So this is um, one thing. Um, so the other thing is that the Earth is clearly in the middle of the world. The world consists of concentric globes, and the Earth is in the middle. So this is a doctrine of Aristotle, and later canonized by Ptolemy. But before coming to Ptolemy, so here, again, Cicero insists that um, there are like zones, inhabited zones. You can count, in total, there are five. In total, you have five, five zones, 
on the Earth, but only two of those are inhabitable. And then between those two, there is the torrid zone, the area of the equator, so that's not crossable. So that was the vision of, of, of how the Earth is. And then, uh, again, he repeats, he insists on the point that even within one inhabited zone, there is no uh, connection between inhabited spots, as it were. And this is called the oikumene theory. The inhabited spots are in no communication within a zone. And Earth has five zones, only two habitable, isolated from each other. Now, if we want to visualize this, then we come to a commentary by Macrobius, who flourished around 400. He wrote a very influential commentary on Cicero's Somnium. This commentary was widely copied throughout the Middle Ages from the Carolingian period. And even though it was itself a commentary, it was largely commented upon. Like, for instance, by the great, great Carolingian scholar John, John Scott the Ereugena, John the Scott, so in the 9th century, for instance, he wrote a large commentary on this commentary explaining the explanation, because it was necessary, it's such a tourist text, even even though the Somnium itself is six pages, the, this commentary is like 200, and the <laughs> commentaries in the commentary, it's a difficult text written in, in just very forged, very forged Latin, so it's, 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 it's really difficult to read. So then, here you see the five inhabited zones. No, no, the five zones. Um, there is a, a zone which is the, the top? I think. So there is this cold zone, and this is um, like uh, inhabitable, the south inhabitable. Then you have the torrid zone with the ocean, and then the northern inhabitable zone, and then again the northern uninhabitable. So by principle, it is just uninhabitable. And then within this inhabited zone, you have several spots which are isolated from each other. So, in this manner, this is uh, visualized. Cicero, uh, Cicero is visualized like this. And then the chief points of this theory, the implications, are as follows. The Oikumene theory asserts, on the one hand, complete isolation of inhabited spots. But at the same time, on the other hand, it recognizes and implies that there are other inhabited spots. Without knowing them, we do know that they exist. So this is a, an implication. So it implies the existence of other such spots. In, in, in scholastic English, you could say that there is a knowledge quad, a knowledge that such spots exist. But there is no knowledge quid, that there is no knowledge what they are. So we don't know the essence of them, we don't know how they are, how these people, but they are there. So there is a knowledge quad, but no knowledge quid. This is a, a, a sort of a cosmological implication of, or a geographical implication of the Oikumene theory. Now let's 
get down to the hardliner geographers, we'll see three major figures, Strabo, Pliny the Elder, and then Ptolemy, who is at least uh, a semi-god. Ptolemy is just such an intellectual hero. That, but even Strabo is, is, is a grand figure. Now, Strabo is, was a Greek, an extremely intelligent person, who wrote this Greek book, Geographicae, Geography, so, which is a description of the oikumene. Oikumene in Greek is an adjective which, is, which stands for an entire uh, structure. Hege oikumene, the inhabited land. So Strabo wants to describe the entire inhabited land, and the implication always is the inhabited land that we know. Um, Ptolemy will, they, will make that uh, even more explicit, that oikumene coincides with egnosmene. The inhabited land is the land known by us. That's what we call inhabited land, although we know that there are in other inhabited spots. Nevertheless, we call oikumene that land which we also not only inhabit, but we also know. So Strabo's geography wants to be a complete description, a full description from India to Ireland. And now, he is a skeptic, a very nice, uh, very attractive skeptic, especially with respect to religious rituals. For instance, his description of Egypt is just wonderful to read. He laughs at everything. <coughs> <laughs> at the same time, describes in detail. So he's a very precious, like a treasury of, of late ancient uh, religious practices, for instance, in Egypt. Now, he traveled a lot on his own. And he did make the difference between what he himself saw and what he heard from hearsay, which is a difference many later medieval historians do not make. You'll see one example, Adam of Bremen from the 11th century. He does not really make that difference, but Stable does very clearly. So this is very evident in this little excerpt, which is about Thule. We are interested in, in Thule, of course, which is, uh, you know, uh, the magical, fabulous, uh, northernmost gay oikumene, kai egnosmene, known and inhabited land. So he is, at the very outset, very critical and skeptical about what the certain Pythias wrote uh, about the existence of Thule. Pythias of Massilia um, was a traveler, a sailor, who allegedly sailed out to the Atlantic Sea towards the north. And he wrote a description of his voyage, which is lost. And much of it is retained in these two passages. So we don't have the description itself, but we see that uh, Strabo is very critical of, of it. And then uh, when he says Pythias of Massilia, then under the name of Massilia, he is referring to Marseille, present-day Marseille in the south of France which was a Greek colony, so I, I think one of the westernmost, perhaps not the westernmost, but one of the westernmost. So Pythias, as a sailor, sailed towards um, Britain and Ireland, but he, uh, according to what he is saying, uh, found land even, fur even farther than that, a certain Thule. And then uh, Strabo contrasts his account with uh, that of other people who really have been to Britain. You know, he accentuates that. 
And then, as you see in the conclusion, Strabo is not ready to believe that there is anything uh, beyond Ireland. The picture that you see in the background is, is an early modern uh, reconstruction of this uh, account of his, namely that you see uh, Europe, Spain, Spain, and then Britain, and then Ireland, very far from, from Britain. And as he's saying, um, Ireland is in the direction of the pole, which is completely mistaken. However, that was his northernmost island, and then he will draw the boundary of the known land there. So the world, as we know it, ends here for Strabo. Now we come to Pliny the Elder, who is a little later than Strabo, and is a Latin author, a classic. And his natural history wants to be a universal encyclopedia of everything. And therefore, it is a little, like, not so deep as Ptolemy's astronomy or geography, or even Strabo's geography. It's a little shallower, but it's very um, informative. Also, at his time, Britain was already uh, um, a Roman colony or even a, already a province. So he had much better information, definitely, than earlier authors. Now, we have here probably the first detailed description of the British Isles. Caesar also wrote about that, but he was not a real geographer or natural scientist like Pliny was. So then uh, Pliny also knows about Thiele. He writes Thiele, Thiele. Thule is the last of the islands that are mentioned or spoken of. And then here we have the first astronomical observation concerning the Thule solstice. So before this, there is not much question, no question about astronomical, specific astronomical phenomena in this northernmost part of the world. But uh, here you have the first, and also the first report uh, on the frozen sea. So that's like uh, the Arctic Ocean, very probably, because it can be no other. So you see that uh, the border of the uh, Oikumene has just receded towards the unknown, one step further. And now we come to Ptolemy. To the honor of Ptolemy, we should keep one minute silence. So <laughs> I admire Ptolemy. So you know that he had basically he had many. He wrote a lot, but he has two major books which are real big. One is the so-called Almagest, whose real title is Syntaxis Mathematicae, a mathematical summary. The title is misleading because that's the astronomy of Ptolemy. And then uh, already in the foreword, he points out that he's not interested in mathematics. So it's it's funny. He's interested in physics. I mean, um, um, that's a tricky question, what, we, what he really in, is interested in. But that's the big book, the big summary of uh, the so-called Ptolemaic geocentric worldview. A detailed, uh, really state-of-the-art uh, summary, large-scale. And then the other big book of his is this, the Geographical Guidance, Geographici Hufigesis. 
so, which is marked by extreme precision. So I think uh, I read a little bit of, of, of the book, um, uh, Ptolemy ranks with Newton as a natural scientist. That's my sincere opinion. He is the first who gives you geographical coordinates, latitude and long longitude, um, of every single city or natural object that he describes. And because of this, he also situates Thule with exact coordinates. You can see that in Book 2, Chapter 3.32, you can find it. And then uh, there is again a description of uh, astronomical phenomena and a general description of where Thule is. So Thule is just on the border of the world as it is known to us. That's the that expression there, agnosmeni hemingi, the world as it is known to us, ends with Thule. If you want to visualize that, then you get this picture. It's not clearly seen, but Thule is there. That little land, that's Thule. This is Britain, that's Ireland. The rest is more or less evident, although I would like to point out that this is Sri Lanka. That's India, somehow distorted. And then, of course, this is Arabia, Africa, and then Europe. These want to designate large uh, mountain ridges. So then here you have Thule, and then the world, the, the, as it is known to us, right, ends here. Now, there is no doubt that Ptolemy thought that the Earth is a round globe. Because there's absolutely no doubt because he writes that in express words uh, in the Almagest. So there is no question about that. The world is a globe and the Earth is in its middle, at its center, and it's also a small globe. So we have to, to go back to this map, we have to think that this is the surface of a globe, but the world as it is known to us ends here. It doesn't end in itself, but as it is known to us, it does end here. And the other interesting uh, thing to point out is that um, then this corresponds to the northern inhabitable zone, which, which is here. Here we have cold, this is inhabitable, this is torrid, uninhabitable, inhabitable, and again cold. And now this picture is just this. Alright, so the implication is that there is another inhabitable zone, but we don't know anything about that. And this zone, of course, goes around here because it is a globe, no doubt. But, it, but as far as we know it, it ends there and there. And so we don't know how, what lies in the continuation and how these two arms would come ever together. We don't know that, but they do not, this area doesn't cover the entire in northern inhabitable zone. It's just a, that place, that part of it which we do know. So, this is it. And then if we now turn to a modern reconstruction, Get hold of this book if you can. 
this is a masterpiece of modern scholarship on geography, so an incredible precision. And there you find this reconstruction taking Ptolemy's uh, coordinates seriously. It turns out to be the case that Tule is there, which means that it, it is perhaps not Iceland, with which it is generally identified, but more like um, Shetland Islands or, or even Faroe Islands. This would be Orkneys. He doesn't have any Hebrides. This is Ireland, or perhaps these are Hebrides. So this could be probably more like Faroe or, or Shetland. And the important thing is that he clearly says that Tule is under the parallel which is the boundary of the world as we know it. So it is really just like, as if the parallel was a physical line going above. Tule lies under, exactly on the margin of the world as we know it. And beyond that, we don't know anything. So then we are in the second century Anno Domini, and of course uh, some of the dark centuries will follow till Charles the Great comes and establishes the Carolingian Empire, and then again you have uh, a surge of natural science. One of the protagonists of this is Dick Will, who was an Irish monk, or at least a cleric, in the, in the ninth uh, century. We don't know much about his life. And we, were, we do know when he flourished, and then he was like uh, a geographer, a natural scientist of Charles the Great. So he probably just saw that magnificent uh, edifice, which is in the background picture, and which is Charles the Great's chapel in Aix-la-Chapelle, German Aachen, uh, which was just uh, consecrated in 805. So actually, Dick Will could see it is probably solid, although Charles the Great was an itinerant emperor, so he didn't always stay in one place, but he often stayed in Aix-la-Chapelle. So Dick Will, his like, court geographer, wrote Demon Sura Orbistere, which is like, which is very different from Strabo or, or Ptolemy, let alone Ptolemy. Um, with, with this work, we are, we are entering into medieval natural science, which is a little gloomy, not so brilliant as late ancient or as early modern, because these works, much of these works, uh, consists of compilations. So, like I've indicated that uh, four chapters just summarize ancient authors. So, look, says Dickwell, this is what Pliny said, this is what Isidore said, what Priscian said, and so on and so on. But now we come to the interesting part, which is uh, point 11. That is his own input uh, to the discussion. And this is very interesting. So he must be, like, perhaps in his, in his 50s when he's writing this, because he said, 30 years ago, some clerics who stayed in that island, namely Thule, we are talking about Thule, uh, from February to August, told me that the period of the summer solstice, the setting sun almost doesn't go down. So it's just, it just lurks, uh, remains on the horizon, and if you could go on top of uh, a mountain, then the sun perhaps it wouldn't have even gone down. So then there was light enough to take the lies from your shirts <laughs> at midnight, which is very nice, you know, they don't bite at night. 
just to see the sun was shining. But this this looks pretty much a first-hand piece, a piece of first-hand information. Pico doesn't say he has been to Tule, but he's saying, okay, I, I have this from the first hand. So this is precious. And the fact that we are in the early 9th century, and the historical fact further that we know that Iceland became settled at the end of the 9th century. I'll show you evidence for that in the Icelandic annals. So around 876 or 4, the invasion, a massive invasion arrived from Norway. But we also do know that this is a simple historical fact. Uh, there is consensus uh, as to this, that Iceland had been discovered before, before the, the Norseman invasion by the Irish like clerics and monks who were like, uh, I don't know, just uh, had a sort of a, a bad, bad time in Ireland. Too many people, no way to meditate. Let me go out to the Atlantic. And then this is a historical fact that several individual monks inhabit, occupied certain parts of Iceland. Perhaps a century before uh, the Vikings, the so-called Vikings, where the Norsemen arrived there. And we are exactly in that time. So these clerics, of whom um, Dickwell speaks, are the ones who were the first inhabitants of Iceland. So this coincides with other accounts. There is probably no doubt about the interpretation. And then uh, he has one more interesting remark. He knows about um, authors who wrote that the sea is frozen over beyond or around Tile. So he insists that the frozen sea is just one day's navigation further from the island, more towards the north. And this again seems first-hand information. We are coming now uh, to the pick of the matter, um, to the old Icelandic authors, and then the medieval Latin uh, clerics. And before we start discussing this slide, um, let me give some methodological hints, because um, there are basically two groups of sources uh, when we come to a discussion of earliest Inuit European encounters. You have the old Icelandic sources, which are different genres like annals, um, sagas, books, other narratives. And then um, you have the Latin chronicles. Some of them, not many, do mention North America. The discovery of North America by the Vikings, the Norsemen, before, well, half a million, millennium before Columbus. So there are these two major groups of written sources. There is archaeology, but I'm not into that. So these two major sources. And you have to decide about the order of presentation and the the weight you want to give to each of to either of them. So then my suggestion is that we start with the accounts written by the Norsemen because they were there and the Latin chronicles were earlier in time, writing earlier, already in the middle of the 11th century you have Adam of Bremen who already knows about the Norseman discovery of North America. So you have a, a written text from around 1070, which is earlier than the old Icelandic accounts in their written forms. 
Nevertheless, uh, Adam of Bremen has never been, not, not even on a boat, ever in his life. So he never left uh, Denmark or, or the Archdiocese of Hamburg, uh, Bremen, and so on. So my suggestion is that we treat first uh, those sources which contain first-hand information, even though they were written down much later than the first Latin chronicles, like centuries later, in their written forms. Because in saga research, uh, specialists differentiate between three epochs. First you have the event epoch, then you have the saga epoch, and then the writing epoch. And these are like uh, stand apart by centuries. The event epoch is the discovery of, of Greenland, and Newfoundland, uh, that's before one, the year 1000, or around the year 1000. That's when these things happened. But then, uh, uh, for a saga to be formed out of that, it takes perhaps one century. And then before those sagas are written down on parchment, on, on, on dog pelt, whatever, paper sometimes, you know, uh, that takes, again, one or two centuries. So the writing era is like the 13th, 14th century, which is much later than the epoch when the Latin authors wrote. So let, let's follow this uh, methodological line and see uh, first Ari, the learned Ari, Ari the learned, an author at the turn of the 11th century. Now this is our, our first text which describes any kind of encounter, European encounter with the Inuit. You have the old Icelandic text. Some uh, terms will be underlined in later sources. Those will be particularly important. Now, Ari uh, was a, a learned man. Christianity arrived in, in Iceland in the year 1000, exactly, but there is some discussion whether it was not 999, however, leaving that aside. So, with Christianity, writing was introduced to Iceland, and immediately clerics arrived in the island, and then schools were set up, and bishoprics, and so on, so there was education and, and written culture. And this book, the Icelanders' book, Islandinga book, is considered to be the, the first old Icelandic uh, written text. So this is the earliest that was written down uh, when it was composed. It is a short text, maybe 10 to 20 pages, consisting of like, perhaps 13 chapters. Each chapter is one or two. There are longer and shorter chapters. But this one, which concerns the discovery of Greenland by the Norsemen, is, is this entire chapter, is this short. So then you have the uh, very precious indications, which are perhaps universally known to everybody, that it was Eric the Red, you know, uh, who sailed out from Iceland and took possession. By the way, in the background, you see Inuit uh, semi-subterranean houses. These are modern houses, but in the text there is mention about the squalings, that must refer to the Inuit, and of their houses and boats and stonework. So, therefore, I put uh, in the background some of the houses which are still there in Greenland, Inuit houses. So then Ari is saying, Eric found already um, traces of human habitation in, in Greenland. 
and those habitations looked very much like the ones they discovered later uh, in other parts uh, and which were constructed by just graylings. Now this word probably means weakling. There is some discussion in the literature as to what it exactly means. But square or scrawl is an existing word in, in some Scandinavian languages meaning weak. So squaling is probably translated as weakling. <coughs> and then that's the Norseman view of, of the Inuit. Uh, it, ex it is expressive. And then another interesting thing is that there is no real description of a, a personal contact just a description of what material culture, what pieces of material culture there were found. So there is absolutely no talk about spiritual culture. In order to, to hear about religion mentioned in the same sentence as the word Eskimo or Inuit, you'll have to wait 500 years, five, half a millennium. That will be Martin Frobisher who first puts the question, do we know anything about the origin of these people? Um, Norsemen were not interested. In this, uh, they were interested in other things, but at least here is a first mention of some kind of contact, not immediate, not personal, but a discovery of the material culture. And then, uh, yes, houses, boats, and other uh, pieces of construction. Ari is otherwise a very intelligent historian, and he tries to date the event very precisely. One of the major sources is, however, the Eirik's Saga Rauda, the Saga of Eric the Red. Now, there is another important source, the Grönlandinga Saga. we can't cover all, so Eric the Red's saga is more important, it gives you more information, so I thought we should discuss this. Also, it must be pointed out before we enter the text itself that Eric the Red's saga is quoted under different titles and published under different titles too. So in some textbooks it is entitled uh, Thorfinn Karsifni's saga and so on, so there is some possibility of, of misunderstanding when you want to identify this particular saga. But the saga in the tenth chapter of which you find this uh, text, that is the one I'm talking about, all right? Generally it is referred to as Eric the Red's saga. Now, these two sagas, Grönlandinga and uh, Eric the Red's saga, discussed the discovery of Heluland, which is like probably, very probably, Baffin Island's uh, eastern coast, Markland, which is very probably uh, Labrador Peninsula eastern coast, and Vinland, which is very probably Newfoundland or some area, adjacent area. So this discovery happened in around the year 1000. We know this from the Icelandic annals, which we shall look into very soon. But first, uh, let's see what um, the saga says, this is more immediate, more, more first-hand, more, more of an experience. So here you have a description of the first contacts with continental aboriginals in North America, not with Greenland aboriginals, but with continental aboriginals. And this immediately poses the question who these aboriginals were. Because if we are in Newfoundland, 
and you can see in the background picture a reconstruction of uh, of a house uh, in the settlement in the Norseman uh, settlement, which was found by Herge Ingstad, as as you all know, in the 70s or 60s, um, in a place called Lons or Meadows in northern Newfoundland. Um, so there was this is an archaeological fact uh, um, a Norseman settlement. Now in this text, because uh, there were Inuit as well as American Indian Aboriginals present in the area, exactly in Newfoundland. This is again an archaeological fact. I've read a little bit about uh, Northern Arctic archaeology, so it is a fact that I think uh, Dorset culture was represented on, on, New, on Newfoundland uh, at this time. So, therefore, we do not know who exactly these aboriginals were. We don't know immediately, but there are indications. If we want to uh, discover, then let's look out for such key terms as leather boat. So this is probably to indicate that this was an Inuit culture. Because uh, North American Indian uh, boats in that area were made of like birch bark or bark rather than uh, leather. So this is just a probable indication that we really have to do with, with Inuit uh, tribes here. And then if we look um, and read further, then we see uh, one of the first encounters. This is a very vivid picture. So on the one hand, you have the rugged, you know, huge uh, giants, berserkers, and so on, the Vikings, in Minnesota, the football team is called the Vikings. So you have them, and, and, and on the other hand, you have just crailings, you know, weaklings. Who knows uh, whether they, they were probably not weak. But anyway, that was their Scandinavian view. And then Carl Safney, uh, a tribal chief, lifts uh, the shield, you know, to be sure. And then they meet up peacefully. And there is a discussion somehow, certainly by way of sign language, there's no other way. Icelandic being a Germanic language, and then you are either on the other side, you either speak Inuit or some Algonquin language, and no interpreters, I'm afraid. It had to be sign language. And then uh, they read to an exchange of goods. This is a, a technical term in, in old Icelandic, Kaustif. So, this, what does this reveal? This reveals that. There, has, there had already been a culture of exchange of goods, even on the side of the Inuit, because they immediately understand that this is a possibility and they uh, offer that possibility to the Norsemen. So the Inuit tribe had the experience of trade. This is not surprising, by the by, way. By, by, um, by. And the other interesting point is that they were interested in textile. So that was like a, probably uh, a product of advanced technology. Like you are now interested in uh, the, the most, uh, the newest products by Apple or whatever, Silicon Valley. The Inuit were interested in new technology and also in more advanced weapons. But that was not, uh, that, that was out of question that you would sell your weapons to your eventual or um, perhaps to your enemies, because that's how it continued. There became there, there were hostilities a little later on. 
the way that this saga reproduces this is, is I don't know to, to what extent it is realistic, but there is talk about a bull which jumps out of the wood and then the aboriginals are frightened and paddle away and disappear for three weeks. But then they return, of course, in large numbers with fortifications. And then uh, they already start not by proposing exchange, but, but by shouting, you know, just howling terribly. And then the Norsemen lift the, the red shield, which is, uh, I'm told, uh, a token of war. And then there is a battle. Interestingly, again, you may ask yourself what kind of, of aboriginals they are faced with. An indication or an answer might be the word Valslengur, catapults. Of course, you have to think of hand catapults. Um, and I've been with uh, yeah. Walter. Anyway, uh, with you, and you showed me hand catapults in the Museum of Wells Fargo Bank. So I just tend to think that this word refers again to, to Inuit culture, which certainly had this kind of uh, lance thrower uh, hand apparatus. But, but there is discussion as to how to interpret uh, this term. So then, what is the consequence of a battle? The, uh, there is an episode of the Thrones, a very famous episode of a lady who opposes from the ranks of the Norsemen uh, the aboriginals and who frightens away them. So they are saved by a, by a, by a, by a woman. And then they consider what, what, what this was, actually. And then this is, again, interesting. The army, which just appeared so out of nothing, must have been finger, which literally translates um, a vision um, delusion. Uh, so the vocabulary says ocular delusion work by spell. So there you have a beginning of the mythologization of the event. Uh, all right, so these are like superhuman beings sent to us by a spell and so on. Because otherwise they couldn't have prevailed over us. That's the... Uh, Position. And then uh, the final consideration, and with this we are drawing near the end of uh, Eirik's saga, that there is an understanding that we cannot stay in this land if we are received in such hostile manner. So we'd better leave and go back. But um, this, again, was not so simple because we are certain that at least till the early 12th century, the colony remained. We know this because from the following group of sources, the Icelandic Annals, it is clear that a bishop was sent to North America, to Newfoundland, in 1121. So there must have still been uh, a, a Norse colony there. So at least for several generations, the settlement survived. And uh, um, this is one, one point. And another point is, yes, I wanted to show you the background picture, which is a langskip, a warship. Um, the information in footnote is, is interesting. 
So this is an original longship which was found almost intact because it was buried together with its owner in the Osberg area. This is in Norway, I think, perhaps Sweden, I'm not certain. But it dates back to this time and it, it's like, you see how long? Uh, for me, in meters, it would be easier, so 21, 20 meters and 5, five meters uh, width with the mast like 9 to 10 meters, 30 feet, and 15 pairs of oar holes, which means that 30 men could also paddle, whereas it would generally just sail so long as there is wind. And the velocity such a boat could reach was like 10 kilometers per hour, which would be 6 miles per hour or so. So if there is wind, you can do 250 kilometers a day, which would be like 150 miles a day. So it was just possible to, um, to reach, and again, first look at the background map. It was just possible to reach Iceland. And then you can reach Greenland in one day with such a long skip. And then you can sail through here to the northern part of Baffin Island in two days. So this is completely feasible. And the sagas, actually, I think Grönlandinga saga, but also Eirik saga, give a detailed description of the route. So they say where to turn, which direction, and so on. So this is now. Um, a following group of sources, the Icelandic annals. There are like 10 to 12 annals written by clerics in monasteries in Iceland um, from the 11th century on. They are a very interesting group of sources, but I'm running out of time, so I'll just speed up. My first question is, what are the annals? They are year-by-year -year registers of the most important events of the year. And here, first, you have the Raisin Annals, which um, are called by, uh, because of the uh, owner. Yeah, but it doesn't. It would be nice if it could, but it doesn't. So then, the first uh, year that I have indicated on this, is the beginning of Iceland settlement. So that's that's a fact, a historical fact. And then again, you have the settlement agreement. Thank you very much. That's uh, 986. And then there are several other events which I left out, but these are packed with historical facts. Uh, to us, this is important. This is actually in English. Uh, you can read in English. Christianity taken in law in Iceland. So, you know, Old Icelandic is a Germanic language very related to English. So you have an advantage over other people in learning Old Icelandic. And then the most important is this. 1121, Bishop Eric sailed out for Greenland. And then we don't know anything about his return. But there is a lot of talk about ships disappearing at sea, losing anchor, getting drowned, sailors getting drowned, and so on. 
So Bishop Perry probably never returned. Well, that was his mission. So it looks. And then uh, there is a lot of talk about uh, bishops being consecrated for Greenland. There was one bishopric in the south, Gardar, and, uh, and so on. Yes, the most important topic of the annals is commerce and church. So then mostly, most um, mentions are made of uh, church events and of commercial events. And there's a, uh, an exact register of ships coming and going, arriving and setting sail and disappearing. Let's see a little more of this. This is another annal, the, the royal annals. Again, you have the year where, when Eric uh, settled down in Greenland. Again, Eric the bishop left for Greenland in this year, so there, at this year still had to be, must have been a strong uh, Norse settlement in North America. And then you see some news of tragedies at sea. And this is especially interesting because in the year 1347, there is a mention of Markland, which is um, Labrador, uh, western, eastern coastland. So then, uh, again, this ship wanted uh, to sail from Greenland to Markland, but got lost at sea and ended up in Iceland. So this was common. You didn't know where you were going, really. But the most interesting news come in the Gottskalks uh, annals. Again, Markland is mentioned. So the meaning of this term is land of the forests, because um, the eastern coast of Labrador Peninsula is, is very uh, full packed of forests, packed with forests. But then uh, the year 1379 concerns an event in Greenland, not in, uh, in continental North America. Here's a translation. So there were hostilities in Greenland between the two ethnic groups, and then killings, uh, were, killings happened and hostages were, were taken. And then probably uh, this translates as, as, as taking slaves or servants, making slaves or servants of your captives. This was um, um, a bilateral affair because we know from the end of Grönlandinga saga that the uh, Norsemen took two Inuit boys uh, as captives, took them with them and taught them old Icelandic and, and then were just integrated into the community in some way. Uh, Iceland and Greenland were uh, communities which knew and ap applied slavery for a long, long, for long centuries. So there were very distinctly two classes of people, the freemen and the slaves. So these people could be integrated as, as slaves. So these contacts were not peaceful, probably. It is a historical archaeological fact that the first Inuit arrived in Greenland from the north. Uh, from the area where you now have the settlement of Thule, which is probably the northernmost inhabited place uh, in the Arctic, from there, and slowly descended towards the south on each, on both sides of the of that island, on the western and on the eastern side, and then after several centuries they met up uh, in the south. Uh, so they were there millennia before uh, the Norsemen. And then, certainly, the Norsemen had to just cope with this fact that they, 
uh, that the Inuit are already there. Now, if we go on, then we come to the second major group, which is the Latin uh, Chronicles, and I can assure you that I have this slide and one more, so we are not bad. Okay, Adam of Bremen's Chronicle bears uh, a difficult title which translates the deeds of the uh, high priests of the Hamburg church. Adam of Bremen, despite his name, probably had nothing to do with Bremen. That's a misunderstanding, but he's registered in history books and his name will not change anymore. So he is Adamus Bremensis, but he worked in Hamburg as the historian of the Archbishop of Hamburg in an epoch in which um, there was constant strife between the newly Christianized northern kingdoms of Sweden and Norway and the long-standing Christian Archbishopric of Hamburg with respect to the question, who shall be the spiritual leader of the newly Christianized lands? The new kings insisted that they want to, they want to have new bishoprics, new archbishops nominated by Rome, the Pope, but the archbishop, archbishop in Hamburg insisted that these lands belong to his ecclesiastic jurisdiction. So Adam, his historian, is writing here a book which actually wants to serve as a prop-up, as a support for this claim that we have been present here uh, centuries before, or a long time before, uh, the new kingdoms got Christianized. So the Archbishop of Hamburg has authority over this territory, full stop. So this entire book, which is a long text, it's like 200, 300 uh, pages in Latin, is like an argument, part of an argument with this in view. But there is a very precious book for in it, uh, a description of the Northern Islands. Northern Islands. And here you have a chapter on Iceland, one on Greenland, and one on Vineland. And this is very interesting. So, Vineland. The name itself would mean wine land, really. And here is an explanation. There, uh, Adam says, there is excellent wine. And there is wheat uh, also um, growing spontaneously. So this points to the fabulous or mythical character of Greenland. There has been much discussion whether these lines really uh, derive from experience. But let's go to Adam's sources. Where does he take this information from? Well, he was invited by the king of Denmark, I think Swain II or III, but probably Swain II. And he, I mean Swain, the second king of Denmark, had first-hand information about the North, Northwestern territories. So he conversed with Adam for a long time, and what he knew is just written here down by Adam in Book 4. So this actually relies on, on first and second hand hearsay, but from people who, who really were informed, like a king should be. So then the question arises, can it be true that in the Newfoundland region there is wine and there is wheat growing? And then I've read 
into uh, this, Helga Ingstad insists that this is just mythical, a mythical account. Uh, I insist that it isn't. If you read, uh, not Forbisher's account, but the discoverer of Canada helped me, the first Cartier, Jacques Cartier. If you read Jacques Cartier's description, that's from the 16th century. That's true. And here we are talking about the 11th. So that's, that's true. However, Jacques Cartier uh, writes several times, that's a text written in Middle French, uh, that there is plenty of wild uh, raisins. Raisins, huh? il y a des raisins partout. In abundance, there is a, a like wild uh, grape growing everywhere in the, in the valley of the St. Lawrence River. And we are there. Geographically, so this is not impossible. That Vinland really takes the name, its name from wine, but there is no talk about uh, aboriginals. For that, we have to go to our last. Oh yes, this is the. I wanted to show you the manuscript of this chapter. Here you have Preteria Unam Atuk Insulam. There's a correction. Regionem is wiped wiped out, and Insulam is here. Recitavit. And the text is full of ligatures or shortenings, and this is it. Now, if we go to the last slide, then we'll find an anonymous <coughs> author on, on the history of Norway, which is, um, which again, um, which in turn contains um, a summary of. Um, of some encounters, at least, because there is a talk about uh, inhabitants. There were people of a miraculous size. We don't know what this refers to, but let's see the miri um, magnitudinis, but that's Greenland, and then they went further beyond uh, the Greenlanders, towards the north, there they found little people. So, whom the hunters call Skralings. And now we have here probably the, f yeah, this is like the, the first description of material, Inuit material culture in Latin, that there is no iron, and there is a bone culture and stone uh, culture. So with this, we are arriving to our uh, to the end of the presentation. And my conclusion is uh, that we have seen the sources, many of the most important, so not all of the sources. You can't cover that in an hour. But uh, you see that there is only very scanty reference to the Inuit themselves. There is a knowledge that, uh, that, that these people do live there, and there is a, a very slight or, or little knowledge about what their material culture is like. There is no talk about their spiritual culture, that was not interesting. No talk about their language, although at the end of the Grunlandinga saga, you have probably the first two earliest Inuit words written down ever, which are two names, or three perhaps two. The two captured Inuit boys' names are, are just uh, contained 
I think in the last paragraph of Grunlandinga Saga. So there is some scanty information, but what we essentially know is that the two cultures, I mean, invading Norseman culture and Aboriginal Inuit culture, although they tended to cooperate and uh, have converse with each other, nevertheless often were hostile to each other. And this is actually all that we know. So I, I want to thank you for your attention. And I'm at your disposal uh, for questions. Should anybody have any? Uh, yes, please. You mentioned you uh, mentioned the door set were in Newfoundland. That, that correct? Um, ideas where, where they went after that or, or what happened to them? They seem to have just disappeared later on. Um, could you repeat the question so people could hear behind us? Yes, please. Could you repeat the question? So, I'm hard of hearing. Uh, ah. so, you should repeat also to you. Do, do you want to use the microphone? Yeah. We could do this. Oh, here we go. Let's just take this. Oh, here we go. <laughs> I'm curious that the, uh, you said the girls were in Newfoundland, and then wondering what may have yes. happened to them after that. Yeah. I understood they just kind of disappeared off yes. the earth later on. Thank you. Thank you for the question. This is a, a, a topic which is which is often discussed, actually. And vice versa, the other question related to this is also often discussed, where did the Norsemen go from Greenland itself? Because they are also, uh, towards the end of the 14th century, the original Viking or Norseman population dies out. And then there is a good uh, summary on the question, which is written by a certain Mr. Finn, F-I-N-N. -N. The title is very simple to remember, A History of Greenland. <laughs> so this is really simple. And then you, at the corresponding chronologically ordered place, you will find a chapter on why and how uh, this uh, Greenlandic uh, Norse population got extinct. And the same question poses itself with respect to, to Vinland or Wineland. And now what, what people say is, uh, what several different sources in technical literature say is, that they either went back, just like we have seen in the saga, that they, they decided that they could not live in such hostile environment, better to go home. There at least we have land. It seems that in Greenland, well, it's a, it's a huge country, isn't it? So they, they could thrive for centuries. That's certain. There is a, like I've shown you, but I forgot to specify that there was a, there were huge buildings. As a background picture here, you see Eric the Red's uh, estate, I mean, what remains of it, in Bratachlid. It was in, in the eastern settlement area, which is surprisingly in the south of Greenland, although it's called eastern. Nevertheless, there were two major settlement concentrations, Viking settlement concentrations in Greenland. The, the, Western settlement, which was towards the more towards the north, and the eastern, which was in the south. So this is to make you comfortable. And then uh, here you see that it was a thriving community, even in its remains, in its ruins. It's impressive. So then, uh, probably part of the uh, a party vis uh, returned to Greenland, and it is also possible that some of them remained and got dissolved through 
intermarriage or died out in Vinland itself. It is not impossible that uh, there happened some marital contacts. This, however, again leads us to another discipline, which is the study of DNS. And thereby you could do something, but I'm not very informed on that. There is certainly some research into that, but I don't know. So they may have remained, died out, or may have just returned to Greenland. We don't know any better, really. Uh, the houses are there. If you go to Newfoundland, I haven't been there, but there is a nice reconstruction of their ways of living, so you, you can really see that it was also a thriving settlement. Yeah. Apparently no uh, modern peoples today bear DNA from the Dorset, according to what I've understood. Um, would you repeat the essential? I'm, I'm not a native speaker of English oh, okay. and hard of hearing. Yeah. yeah, there are no peoples today that have DNA from the Dorset, apparently. I think Dorset culture uh, went extinct later, and I think it was replaced by Thule, so I'm, I'm uncertain. I really dealt, uh, dealt only a little bit with archaeological studies. There is a certain, uh, I think, Mr. Harp, H-A-R-P, who has written extensively on Arctic uh, archaeology. You can find his articles on the internet freely, and all I know derives from that, and then DNA study, yeah. I know it exists, well, yeah. you two should maybe, maybe consult, <laughs> alright, alright, yeah. well then you are more advanced, <laughs> you should answer, yes please, any other interests, or... yes, could you speak up? Could you teach your voice, come on. <laughs> Well, there's a, uh, there's a notion that goes back at least to early modern times, as you would characterize it uh, among some of the Enlightenment scholars, but probably goes back much before that point in time, which draws a kind of equivalence between geography and primitivism in the sense that the basic idea is the further you go from sort of temperate uh, Mediterranean uh, roots of civilization either to the far north or to the far south because, uh, well, I've worked in places like Tierra del Fuego as well as in this part of the world. So whether we're talking about Tasmanian Aborigines, whether we're talking about Fuegians from Tierra del Fuego, whether we're talking about Bushmen from South Africa, whatever, as you move far south or far north, uh, the farther you go from from the temperate climates that supported agriculture to the to the uh, to the to the more uh, inhospitable, as you'd say, parts of the world in which hunting and gathering was exclusively the way of life. There was this kind of, but it's an intellectual notion too that from the distance from civilization in temperate areas, you know, uh, as you move far north or far south, you know, there, there's a there's almost a clinal descent into primitivism as you move either to the north or south. Of that era, I noticed in one of your early slides, you even talked about the uh, the savages from Ireland, which <laughs> but at any rate, you know, what, what's your, do you do you think that that's an accurate reflection of some of these uh, historical ideas of? Uh... Yeah, I see. Thank you for speaking up. Really, I could understand that, and. Uh, 
I appreciate the question. This is a very uh, interesting question. I'm certain you're kind of anthropologist or something. However, <laughs> however, however, you know what we see um, in the Roman attitude and in the Greek attitude towards whoever is not Roman or Greek. Uh, that may be the root of all things. Um, the Greeks in, in the Hellenistic period tended to, you know, in the position of Plato and Aristotle and Stoan, and they were in position of that, tended to look down on any other culture because they are culturally superior. Even to the Romans, who were militarily superior, nevertheless, culturally, the Greeks were cultural, culturally superior. So there is this very ancient tradition going back to um, 2,000 years ago and more. Um, so this is, as you rightly pointed out, reflected all the time. Actually, up to the 19th century, even in, uh, sometimes I find in Charles Francis Hall, the, the great uh, captain who spent two years uh, among the Eskimo, and that's the title of his book, Life, Life Among the Eskimo. It came out under several different titles, but it's always like life among the Eskimo or my life with the Eskimo or something this, something of this. So he he, he went, uh, I think, to the Baffin uh, Island or Labrador area uh, towards the middle of the 19th century, and it's still you have this paternalistic, condescending. Even he had goodwill towards the natives. But it's in a condescending manner, not taking them as paired, as full pair, as being really um, a partner in everything. So I think you have to, uh, even in even in Boaz, I think Boaz, you experienced that in the uh, central Eskimo, to some extent, to some little extent. But you have to wait, I think, to Rasmussen, who was already partly Inuit, of course, one quarter of his lineage, so then he, he, will, not, he will not play that game, right? And then modern um, uh, anthropology to, to take a very different stance on that. I think a clear indication of that turn is Farley Mowat's um, book, The People of the Deer, which expresses just admiration. There is no question of despise and then looking down or whatever. Admirable, this claim, that's what he's saying. Whereas, coming from the Second World War, I just hate humanity. You know? But the, the Inuit, they are peaceful. There's, there's no war, and they love, it, they love me. And then the accent is not on this, but on the spiritual culture. So then, as soon as you understand that, which is, as soon as you, that's why you are into Inuit studies today, no? Because it's it's incredibly rich. Look at the myths published by Rasmussen and so on, and the, the legend and story, story material and the tales. So as soon as you realize that there is this, then you have no chances of of, of going back to that attitude which you have rightly described. So I think that that attitude has historical roots. Um, it is clearly there in the early modern uh, descriptions. Um, even in Hans Eyde, you know, the, the great 18th century Danish Norwegian missionary, the apostle of Greenland, he despised the Inuit. Oh, well, these uncultivated, rugged, what a blow, it's disgusting. So, but, and he is the apostle of Greenland. And he gives you the first systematic description of, of Inuit religion. 
that's chapter 19. So even though there is this attitude, you get data from these people who nevertheless wrote about them. So this is a complex affair. Let, me, let my answer be complex. Thank you. <laughs> and a very good question. Yes, please. Thank you for your presentation. I, uh, I really appreciate that. Um, in the, uh, I was just interested in some of the technical vocabulary from the Icelandic and the Eric the Red's saga. Um, and you mentioned, yeah, that first encounter, and I don't know the language well enough. I, I used to know it better, but uh, not anymore. So at that first moment then, the, the Aboriginal peoples waved the paddles. But the Norsemen waved the waved the shields. Well, but that yeah. you know, I, I wonder if there's, and I may be reading too much into it, but a, a paddle could be an offensive yes. weapon. But you yes. raise the shields to say that's defensive. Not so quickly. It's, uh, I'm reminded yeah. of the um, the scene in Beowulf. Uh, I can't remember. I think Beowulf or, or one of his. Um, Lieutenants pulls his sword out just two finger breaths when he's yep, yep, being yep. threatened, right? So it's not, it's like the, the gunslinger in the Western who pulls his, yeah. his yeah. shirt flap yes. back just yes. to let. So I'm, I'm sort of wondering, because this is really even before the exchange, it's just that yes. first sight yes. Yes. Of, of the two cultures. I wonder if there's been, yes. if you've thought about that or if there's any... Yes, uh, I have thought about it. That's, that's something I can assert, but whether I can give a, a better or more insightful interpretation than what uh, is uh, there or than what I have done so far, I'm uncertain. So what we literally uh, see or read here is that uh, this is actually this word here, trianum, which is an instrumental case. So with the uh, with the pad, yeah. Oh, sorry, I'm. I wanted to. It seems I can't click on it. Forgive me. So I'll just show it with the pointer. So we don't know what it really means. I translate paddle, but the the vocabulary meaning is piece of wood, like a plank. So they were waving planks. And then uh, as many translations as you read, you'll find as many uh, interpretations. Translator must somehow translate and put one word there, which is actually a word which has several meanings. And you, of, of the context, the most immediate thing you would think of is the paddle. That's, But actually, on an, on an Inuit kayak, you may have several instruments, you know, like... Uh, prepared for uh, catching seal, whatever, yeah, lances even, uh, and so on, harpoons. But the word itself means piece of wood, a, a long piece of wood. So then... But in the, in, the, in the instrumental? Yes. So, for use, it's not just a it may random be. piece of it wood. It just may be. Yeah. It just may be. So what we read is that they were doing this with pieces of wood. And then as we go on reading, then... Uh, Later on, uh, 
I left here out part of the sentence which, which I considered was not interesting, but what is there refers to your question, because there it says the boats arrived from the south and the squirrelings waved again pieces of food, however, uh, in a direction... If you stand behind them, if you stand behind them... What we know, what is extra information, is that they were raving those pieces of wood, wood in the direction of the sun, which Vic Fusen's big Icelandic English dictionary specifies a bad sign. So you shouldn't, if you just wave or brandish uh, like a weapon or something, in the direction where the sun is, that's uh, like a threat. That's threatening. And then again, uh, how the uh, Vikings, it's not a good word, the Norsemen react. They also take up an expressive sign, which is the shield, but the red shield, apparently, it, it, it seems from the text that they have two kinds of, two colors. One black or, or neutral and the other red, which also expressed threat. So as soon as that it is evident from probably mostly from the, the shouting, which was uh, threatening probably, as soon as that it is evident that this group is coming with bad intents, then they will act accordingly. So here they do not attack, which is something extraordinary, a Viking group that doesn't attack. You know, you wouldn't expect that. But, yes. Sorry, not sorry, um, to uh, pursue this, but so the the waving into the sun would mean that the defenders would have to look would ha would not be able to see the weapon as well because the sun would uh, blur the exact nature of of the weapons, and of course the red shield is su suggestive of bloodshed yes. and those kinds of things. But what interested me. Um, because you made a couple of other um, statements that there may have been some culture in some of these areas prior to the, the saga's recording. Yes. Yes. Um, and so really the first moment, even before there's the exchange of goods, there's this visual encounter yes. Yes. in which it's ambiguous at yeah. least and perhaps yes. not even a little bit threatening. Yes. So yes. I, I just wondered if that squared yes. with your yes. your yes. analysis. Yes, uh, very nice. And and to, to just pick up one point, uh, the reference uh, to to commerce and to the fact or or um, the appearance the appearance that even the Inuit had an experience of commerce. This is later also clear from such descriptions as we have from Martin Forbisher's uh, account. So there again, you know, Forbisher ran there, I say that three times, it was like, I think Baffin Island, uh, much, much later, late 16th century, 77, 78, 79, 80, 81, 82, three times. He returned, he was looking for the Northwest Passage to, to China. This is again a text which first, uh, appeared in, in Middle French, so this is funny, because uh, the captain himself was English, and the author is unknown. 
and then later in the 17th century, a Latin translation came out, Historia Navigationis, Capitanei Angli Martini Forbiceri, and so on. So you have a Latin translation. But the first edition of the account of his second voyage came out in uh, seven, uh, f uh, 1578 or 9 in Middle French. And we don't know who the author is, but it should be the captain himself. Uh, so this is difficult. But there again, what we find is that uh, as soon as Forbisher um, approaches the, the first Inuit that he catches sight of, he uh, puts down objects on the ground. The Inuit don't want to approach. Just keep a distance and watch. And then Forbisher puts down like knives and that kind of stuff on the ground and then withdraws. Uh, then the Inuit would come there, consider, take, and leave just as many objects as they have taken. So they have an idea of, of commerce already. And that's not surprising, I add, as I've done before, because um, there is contact between different Inuit tribes that has been, and even Native American Indians and the Inuit, although that is also, that can be also a hostile story. So, um, there is this um, bilateral understanding that if we are on peaceful terms, then we would commerce, that we would, would just enter into trade. If we are not, then it's war, and there's probably no third choice, it appears. <laughs> yes, please. Thank you, and welcome to Alaska. My question is, in your, I'm curious in your studies, have you ever come across, uh, what's the earliest account of the Inuits recording in their oral history of dealing with the, the Norse and the Iceland coming over? Uh, do you, have you ever come across any of that or have you looked into it? Um, thank you very much for the question. This is a very good one because um, I wanted to start with this presentation, with an anticipation of this question. What I'm doing is only a presentation of the Northwest European side of the, of the discovery, whereas discovery is always something bilateral. You know, you go there and you believe you are the discoverer, whereas you, know, you are also discovered by them. And this is absolutely not reflected in these sources. They are very unilateral. Euro-centered, Euro whatever, as, as you have just pointed out, and with the sense of superiority very often. I mean, uh, even in the era after Columbus, in the Caribbean region, you have only the Franciscan historiographers who sympathize with the Aztec nation, the Nahuas, and so on. And you have to really look long in Peru before you can find one historiographer among the 200 who wrote in the, in the 16th century, who sympathizes with the natives. Those will be usually mestizos, the, uh, like Garcilaso de la Vega, who have Quechua as a mother tongue and Spanish as a father tongue, and then they will not deny either of their legacies or cultural heritages. But really, um, and then they develop a very different strand of historiography. That's very interesting. But in the North, uh, you know, uh, writing comes in the 19th century to these areas where Inuktitut and, and Inuktun is spoken. So before that, you really only have oral history. And coming to an answer, um, 
very difficult to answer because this is a new line of research that is emerging now, actually. I notice in the international technical literature that we are not, no longer interested only in what is in our accounts on the European side, but we want to find in the oral history uh, our reflection in their uh, tales and legends. Uh, how can you do that? That's the next methodological question. Because again, you have to rely on printed sources or diaries of missionaries, sea captains and so on, who recorded that oral history. So then you have a reflection of a reflection, your reflection in the mirror of the other as it is reflected in your mirror. <laughs> you know? So that's complex, but you can do that. I, I want to deal with that. For instance, uh, Charles Francis Hall, whom I just, I've just mentioned, uh, writes about, uh, writes down legends which uh, concern the appearance of white man in ancient times in the uh, Baffin Island area. And then these usually were interpreted um, as referring to 18th century events or so, but they are probably but they probably go back to much earlier times. So, some, so sometimes, you, sometimes you have an oral history recorded in a Western source, which can be interpreted in different ways, and how you interpret it, to which century you refer it back to, which century you refer it back to, whether, whether, you, whether or not you interpret it in a historical manner as referring to a historical event or not, these are the new methodological questions. But the research is possible, and it, it really is appearing now, and it demands a new mentality, which is now there in Native American historiography. You know, we are beginning to have books which describe American history from a native viewpoint that's relatively new. So, I mean, it, this discovery, uh, which you have mentioned, of a possibility of, of doing research into the other side of the discovery is now emerging. And there is a recognition that this is possible. This is all I can say at this moment. But you should write a doctorate about this, right, Mr. Degree. This is, this is a very nice topic. I want to deal with it too, but there are these methodological challenges. Yes, please. Thank you so much for your presentation. Um, a couple of things. Uh, I've been fortunate enough to get to travel uh, all around the northern area. It's been some years ago. But I was awed by the fact that they had, were they capable of living in a place that they lived. We're talking about uh, Point Hope, Shishmaref, um, all of those places. And uh, I don't understand why people who have a sense of superiority would not look with open eyes to what they're seeing. Uh, I think one of the reasons humans want to feel superior is it gives them a sense of security. Uh, and, and of course, uh, that doesn't work out very well. But they, the Native folks, uh, they were not peaceful, as I had thought. Uh, a friend, uh, her husband, did. Uh, he was uh, from Gamble. Uh, they were from Gamble, and uh, he once showed me some some uh, ivory. They looked like little ivory uh, piano keys, but they had been the breastplate 
amongst the, the wars that the, <laughs> that the uh, folks had amongst themselves. And, you know, many people come up with a peaceful little Indians and, you know, that kind of an attitude. But no, it was a full, full-fledged, uh, inter, uh, interpersonal, uh, I don't know that there were slaves, I don't think that was part of it. Because it was too hard to feed yourself, much less others that you took on. But, no, I'm, I'm just uh, curious if, if you had had any opportunity to get this message to the folks on the North Slope and to the the people that study this and the and the the uh, Inuit and the uh, Inupiat, the those folks, how do they approach this? How do they uh, and and the white man would that not be a ghost? So so it would be interesting to 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 find out if they have an image of that. Was that part of uh, a fear-based thing like the here come these ghosts again? Uh, but. What's been the response from the folks in the north of all of this information? Thank you very much uh, for this rich uh, question and complex question. But I think I will owe you an answer till I can go to the north. Because I'm the kind of scholar who is for the first, uh, first time in any Arctic region. As I've pointed out, I was I was really I insisted on pointing out that I'm studying the written sources, so I have no experience of the grand ground north, what is called like that. So if your question is directed in that direction, um, how did I find my way among the natives in the ground? Then my answer is, let's wait till I can get there on another Fulbright ground. That's my clear intention. But at present, I have no um, uh, field experience in the North Slope. The farthest I could get was Fairbanks, which is still Athabasca territory. It's very far from the North Slope. Very far, I noticed, because I drove to Fairbanks yesterday. So. <laughs> <laughs> and then you're not even halfway. So I can't answer. But on the general, in, in, in general, I think your question anyway refers to the relationship between a field anthropologist who is white and who has his or her diploma or, or PhD in the pocket, and that relationship that this person can entertain with a native. But I think this is changing now, really. So um, since Fali Mowat, um, the, the new generation of, of anthropologists have a, a very different mindset or frame of mind, I think. That's what I read in, in the literature. Even some of my doctoral students are in anthropology, though I myself am a historian and philosopher, and I'm doing religious studies also, but I do have some um, doctoral students who are in anthropology, and I see that they are tremendously attracted by these cultures, which are no longer regarded as primitive, but as something that has to offer us precious teachings precious understanding. One of my MA students recently went to Ecuador or Colombia, yeah, Ecuador, and got initiated to some kind of shamanistic ritual. And she is like 22 years old and went alone from Hungary to a tribal territory in the rainforest and spent there one month with a shaman. She was not afraid and she was curious. So there is this new tendency of let's learn from the natives, that knowledge which we don't have anymore, 
we have lost the sense of, of very many things which are there in the Inuit. That's why I'm dealing with this, uh, because being in Southern Eskimo, yeah, I owe you this uh, yeah, uh, recognition, so because I'm very attracted towards this, uh, this cultural legacy. I lost something, so I'm going to ask you to refresh my mind. When did we lose putting limits on knowledge, and is there any way to get back? That's a philosophical question. That's a philosophical question. And uh, I think that uh, you can get it back in several ways. If you really want, you can move out and live with a tribe. Many anthropologists do that. So, if you really want that, you can learn their ways still. There are such communities living. If you don't want to do that or cannot do that, then you can still study the spiritual legacy, which is published now in, in books, in the forms of books. And you can go to and, uh, places where they live and just keep a relationship. For instance, I'm in contact with a Dakota shaman via Facebook. You know, so these people are there. Uh, you, it is not impossible to contact them. And their literature, the spirituality, religion, it has been published. So you can study that. You can earn, a, I would suggest earning a degree with Maria. Huh? So native studies. And then you, then you are taught how these people thought. So really, that, that knowledge is present. It is, you can uh, get acquainted with it. It's not impossible. But one important point is the language, I think. So learning one Aboriginal language is important. Yes? I didn't quite, I, I don't think I made it really clear. Yes. You showed the maps. Yes. And you said this is the part that we know, and yeah. this is the part we don't know. Yeah. And one of the things I've had difficulty with is that people are willing to say, we know this, and it's global, and they don't limit what they know. All right. They In don't put sense. the parentheses, I oh, see. this is it. <laughs> I see, I see. So I completely misunderstood you. Sorry. That's okay. And, yeah, interesting. well, you know. Uh, so then, uh, where did we lose the measure? Yeah. When, when and where um, did we commit this act of hubris? We already know. And there are no limits to our knowledge. I think we, if we are serious, and then again this is a philosophical, philosophical question, then any serious natural scientist will tell you that they don't know everything. So if you look at the theories of matter, and I'm teaching history of natural science. I have some faint ideas about natural science. I'm no natural scientist myself. But um, if you look uh, into the theory of matter, into the theory of how the universe was formed, I think everything is still very, um, you know, questionable. What is matter? Is it ultimately atomistic in nature, or does it have the, the nature of a wave? This is still being discussed by the serious uh, natural science physicists. So I think uh, it is more a question of personal morality and personal reflection, the depth of personal reflection, whether you can draw the line and say, I know this much, and what is beyond I don't know. 
Um, and it is an act of hubris when you cross that line. So I think the history of natural science teaches us that we have to be very cautious with such statements. There is no limit to my knowledge. Because, you know, if you study the history of astronomy in the 16th century, then what you see is that, that there is the new Copernican system emerging, being spread, and the Ptolemyan system, which is being slowly but steadily outdated. And then I, um, what, I, what I want to say is that um, for one and a half millennium, the Ptolemyan system was believed to be robust. So, but in the meantime, just observational data built up, which made it possible for Copernicus to propose a different interpretation. And then the Copernican theory, which put the Earth in the central center, but conserved the circularity of the planetary uh, orbits, was outdated by Kepler, who said no, it was not, it was not surplus. And so, so, and then again, and so on, and so on. Uh, the history of natural science teaches us that there are ever newly and newly emerging paradigms which replace the old ones, and that's an infinite process. So what you have, and this is my perspective, is a perspective of infinite approach towards truth, which is somehow infinite. So that's my perspective. I think it's a personal, Christian personal take, whether you draw the line or not. Um, I'm looking yes. at the clock, so maybe one more question, yes. or yes. one more question? Oh. Karen? Oh. Um, let me go I'm rereading Beowulf. Uh, it's bedtime reading. And I'm curious about the the timing of Beowulf, would that have entered into this, this Hanovering uh, argument about who gets to be head of the church in Iceland and so on? The reason I ask is that when Beowulf is introducing himself to the Danes, he's a geet. Is that how you say it? Yout. What? Yout. Oh, <laughs> he's a like, yacht. <laughs> it looks, it looks like okay. Yeah. He he talks about this friend and competitor, who is Norse, and how they swim out into the Atlantic Ocean, and he beats him because he had to stop off in Norway, and Beowulf swims on, so he really had more stamina and more strength. Does this come into the church? I mean, what is the timing of this? Um, I don't know. I think you, you should, we should ask you. Did you know? Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Would you ask please? <laughs> Thank you. Um, it's, again, it's complex. So the, the consensus is that the story is probably from about around the year 800. It refers back, there, there's one datable event that's in the seventh century, but the manuscript itself is probably from uh, as late as even the early 11th century. So one of the things that um, those of us who work in the medieval period have to deal with is this process of um, the compilation of oral tradition and then the form that it finally takes when it's uh, put down in writing, and then Lord knows what happens when it gets translated 
into other texts. So the, the traditional view is that we have a, um, it, you know, this, this is the founding epic of English literature, and England's never mentioned. But it's in Anglo-Saxon. Yeah, so the, uh, the old theory is that this was a, a pagan tale that had Christian overlay put in probably by a scribe, a Christian scribe who recorded the manuscript. But that, that vision is now beginning to fade. So there's, again, but the relationship between uh, the indigenous culture and the religious culture in, in seen as a, a version of Christianity is equally complex. So thank you. And, and we're going to have to start exiting right now. So thank you so much. Thank you very much.